Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, a series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. I'm joined by Jen Miller, Executive Director of the Ohio League of Women Voters, a nonpartisan political organization that encourages informed and active participation in government, works to increase understanding of major public policy issues, and influences public policy through education and advocacy. Thanks for joining me today, Jen. Hi, thanks. So I want to start by going back in time, um, and I'm going to sort of put three events out there, and I'm, I'm hoping you're going to connect them for me. So turn of the previous century, uh, World War One. Um, an, an awful, awful event, followed by another awful event, which was the 1918 and 1919 Spanish flu, uh, but then followed by uh, a, a wonderful event, the, uh, the expansion of the franchise in the United States to women with the uh, 1920s uh, bringing about women's access to the vote. Uh, are those just dates on a timeline, or is there a connection between the last one and the, and the first two? Yeah, well, first I would say that war tends to bring about social change. So after the Civil War, we saw, you know, Reconstruction era, era amendments. Um, after the First World War, of course, we are seeing um, the 19th Amendment. And then really after World War II, we see the Civil Rights Movement. And so there is this sense that when we have these major events, and, and I think the pandemic would be a part of it, that we really begin to imagine ourselves differently as a nation, and we um, rise to the problem of the nation. What was it about the war and the pandemic that, that sort of opened people's minds to the possibility that women should be given the ability to vote? Right. Well, and actually, after every war, there is um, greater kind of participation by women in, in various parts of the public sphere, right? And, and that in part is because men are fighting more. So then women are, for example, in World War II, working in factories or really in World War One too, like doing a lot of the work, really caring for the home front. Um, and then I think both women and men have to then admit to themselves that women should have equal access to the government as well. Um, you know, a lot of women buried their sons, their husbands, their brothers, their fathers. And I think um, you know, at this time, really through the early 20th century, women are seeing that the issues that matter to them, whether it's education funding or clean water, I think there were just cholera um, outbreaks right before World War One, too, you know, that for them to really have what they wanted in life, they needed to participate in government. So this is a silly aside, but it's the suffragist movement, not the suffragist movement here yeah. in the United States. And yeah. I'm embarrassed, as you pointed out to me before, that I probably picked that up from Mary Poppins. Yep, you probably did. <laughs> Any explanation for, for the different pronunciations? Yeah, so suffrage is Latin. It really means to 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 give to, to actually to give the vote. Um, but um, suffragette was started in England, and in the United States, women thought that was diminutive, so they they went with suffragist. Got it. Good, good. Well, I want to come back to this idea that um, major social or mo major events like world wars and um, pandemics cause massive social change. But I want to 
postpone that to the end. So we planted that seed. You can be thinking about that. But now fast forward to just a, a little while ago. It's it's March here in 2020. Uh, we are scheduled here in Ohio to have uh, a primary. Uh, the pandemic hits right in the in the midst of that or just before that, uh, right. and we get some confusing signals as voters from our our elected officials and leaders. Go vote. No, don't go vote. So right. walk, you you guys the at the league are very active working with our elected officials. Take us through that a little bit. What what happened? Right. So first, I'll just mention, and a lot of people don't know this necessarily, but we have 33 local leagues who also work very closely with boards of elections as poll workers, recruiting poll workers, doing election planning. So at every level of government, we have a lot of participation, especially when it comes to elections. Um, and so let's keep in mind that there were no confirmed COVID cases until about a week before. And at that point, it was really just one. I think um, it's hard to kind of get as especially as we know, testing continues to um, lag, it was hard to know really how big of a deal this was, right? And and as, you know, the, the Secretary of State, actually a good faith effort in setting out a new directive where the boards of elections would like, uh, wipe down their machines after every voter. Um, but by that point, because COVID had already hit in many places in the world and in the United States, those supplies were low. Um, and so we were, as we were um, coming through the weekend, boards of elections were struggling with basic things like getting hand sanitizer, getting alcohol swabs or Clorox wipes. Um, and it was becoming more and more clear by the day that we weren't gonna be able to host a safe election in terms of health um, of poll workers. And a large majority of our poll workers are older, so of that at-risk group, um, as well as um, just voters in general. And this was, this was, got to be a complicated spot, right? I, Secretary LaRose, you know, he wanted to have this election. I, we wanted, I mean, this is my favorite day of the year is election day, right? But we were starting to realize that there was a, a big problem. But there's a gap in Ohio's um, law uh, where there doesn't really seem to be, I, I guess it's probably it for interpretation, but the common interpretation is that there's no um, room for um, adjusting the, the schedule, the election schedule, that that has to be done by the legislature, who's home, right? So now there's like, you know, trying to get the legislature, it's one thing if they're in session, right? And they're, but they're home because they're now isolating. Um, and so there's no way to really get the legislature. Um, so we have a situation where there's this back and forth, back and forth. There's several lawsuits. Um, there's wrong reporting of a lawsuit um, where- pause for, a, pause for a second. So I'm curious, yeah. in, in that moment, who were the actors then? Like you just said, yeah. we excluded one. The legislature was, was yeah. just not present. Yep. But um, you know the three that pop to mind are Secretary of State LaRose, Governor DeWine, and and Health Director Acton. Yes. What, you know, among those three, how do you how do you understand that the decision making took place, and and, and yeah. what do you think do you think there was this weighing of democracy versus health, or was it just wait a minute, there's there's an epidemic raging, we got to shut this down. Right. So on Monday. You know, uh, Dr. Amy Acton, late in the day, I believe it was Monday, called um, Secretary LaRose and basically said, um, we can't have any more than six to 10 people in a room. Well, you can't run an election no. that way, right? Um, and so at that point, we were kind of out of 
options. Um, and so I think, you know, what Secretary LaRose did, um, they tried to go to court and, and argue that this needed to happen. The, the court didn't actually stand with the secretary. Um, some news uh, reporting thought that the court had granted this extension of the election, um, but actually hadn't. So then you have boards of elections sending late at night on Monday, um, emails to the poll workers telling them not to show up and then saying, oh wait, you do have to show up. And it was just, it was just this overall chaos that was incredibly unfortunate. And, um, you know, then Secretary LaRose uh, set June 2nd, the legislature said, no, actually you can't do that. Um, as we said, there's this gap in Ohio law. And so then they set April 28th. Um, and so this is, we are now on our third date for a primary. And we need to understand that confusion is the number one reason people don't show up to vote. And so this has got to be the most confusing primary or the conf most confusing election we've had in, in a long time, modern well, history. So talk, given that your organization is driven to increase participation in the electoral process, talk to me both about what steps you were trying to take during that time and, and sort of what, what is your position on this now that we're in the midst of the, the primary coming to a close? Right. So, I mean, I was feeling more and more torn as we got closer to Election Day. I was hearing directly from poll workers and voting location managers that they didn't have what they needed to run an election safely. And I was really feeling like we were asking people to participate in democracy um, at the at, and risk their health um, at the same time. And, and, and that really was very stressful for me personally because I just felt as though I was responsible for all Ohio voters. Um, so we were part of these conversations throughout. We were also trying to find supplies. We continued to try to find poll workers as poll workers continue to drop out, understandably. Um, if, you if you're older or you have a pre-existing condition or you're just really afraid, right? Yep. Um, so we were trying to be a part of the solution this whole time. Um, I think what we regret the most um, is that this April 28th date really isn't that possible. And I think it was hard to really help the legislature understand that April 28th would be a difficult day to do a primarily vote by mail election. Um, but the Secretary of State, the Ohio election officials, the League of Women Voters, a whole bunch of us were pushing back on April 28th. And um, that's where we are today, and it's been a really, really complicated election for voters. So talk, let's talk in a perfect world. Um, vote by mail is increasingly used by a variety of states around the, the country, and we're getting a trial by fire of it right now. Uh, what's its best case? How is it supposed yep. to work, and, and how is it compromised uh, here in Ohio, given the circumstances? Right. So first off, no one applies for a ballot. Everyone gets a ballot, even in open primary states. Everyone gets a ballot. Um, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can have just have the ballot sent to you um, for the party that you're on the rolls, or you can have both ballots sent to you. You fill out one, you send them both back in, right? right. Um, but everyone is sent a ballot. Number two, there's about eight to 10 weeks from when the ballots are in the mail to when the voter has to return them. Number three, there's still voting facilities throughout every county, multiple, um, which means that you can drop uh, your ballot off or if you've lost it or it didn't come or, or you spilled coffee all over it, you can actually go in and still vote provisionally. Um, so there's a lot of differences. And the way Ohio worked was we were gonna try to do this thing in four weeks 
Let's keep in mind that 85% of voters about wait until um, election day to vote in person. Hmm. So we're gonna try to do this in four weeks. Um, we're gonna keep the application process, which has to be done by mail. Um, it has to be done on paper, it cannot be done online. Um, and there's gonna be no voting centers, and you know, if there's gonna be problems, um, and only people with disabilities or people experiencing homelessness, at least as it was first set out, um, would be able to show up at one location in the county to vote. So right. at every step of the way, there's disadvantages built in for the voters, but also for the boards of elections. Imagine they, they didn't even have enough applications, right? Half of the boards of elections in the state don't even have their own printer to print these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So then imagine that COVID-19 is actually really affecting the U.S. Postal Service um, because it's hard to socially distance and sorting facilities and things like that. Um, and the boards of elections themselves, they're not really set up when you're trying to process a whole bunch of documents, they're also not set up for distancing. Yep. So at the end of the day, we just set everyone up for a very complicated process, if not failure. Yep. So did I hear you right? You said 85% of Ohioans normally vote on the day of the election. Right. How does that, how does that compare to other, other states that have a comparable uh, electoral system to us? Is that typical? Yeah, it's it's pretty typical. I mean, let's keep in mind that there are large swaths of people that um, just don't trust the mail, for example. Um, historically disenfranchised communities don't trust mail and voting. Um, they, uh, You think about people with disabilities, um, they can be much better served and may independently be able to vote if they go in and they can have ballot markers or things like that. Um, students uh, often may have problem getting mail from their mail uh, um, systems um, and so they may decide to go vote in person so there's a lot of different groups um, that really prefer it and then there's a lot of us that just have always done it right, right. and so um, early voting and, and vote by mail certainly help all of us because it does reduce uh, lines and congestion on election day it helps every one of us whether we vote on election day or not but we can't just blink our eyes and all of a sudden have a vote by mail system in Ohio so a little bit of a loaded question. Should we be as citizens concerned at all about the integrity of the current primary? So that's an interesting question. I'm not concerned about the integrity in terms of, uh, you know, that anyone's going to steal anything, right? You know, so when you, uh, mail ballots are actually really secure, you still have to provide your, your you know, the last four of your social or your um, driver's license or state ID number. You still have a signature. You still have to show your birth date. It's very hard to, to have fraud by mail. Um, and then in addition, we still have all of the kind of post-election audits and counting and things like that. And the Secretary of State has made a directive that that can be done digitally so the public can watch, um, where usually the public, at least the media and, and folk nerds like me, will go and watch those, right? Um, so I'm not worried about that part. What I am worried is I think we're going to see really low turnout. And, and a lot of that is because a lot of people are just giving up. So if you, so let's, let's go through this a little bit. You might still think it's June 2nd, and then by the time you realize that, you realize that you don't really even have enough time to mail in your ballot request and get your ballot back and then mail your ballot in. Um, so you've got a lot of folks like that. I, I hear from Ohioans every day that the Board of Elections said that they postmarked their ballot to go to them like, like 
weeks ago and it's still not there. Um, so just a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration. Um, and so I, I do, I am worried and I'm worried about certain populations. So I'm actually really worried about students yeah. um, because students might've thought it was June 2nd, right? They got a postcard in the mail telling them it was different, but if they're registered at school and they're back at home or they're at a partner's house or whatever, they're not even gonna get that postcard necessarily. Um, worried about seniors um, who are just, maybe they aren't really that comfortable with you know, getting online and figuring this out, never done it this way. Um, you, your signature has to match and maybe you have arthritis. Um, worried about um, individuals that maybe don't have the money for the postage. They don't have a printer at home, which is the fastest way to apply. Right. Uh, and so then it makes me wonder about when we have these levies, right? You know, what happens, what, what will we see? Will we see some weird outliers, you know, if levies pass or don't pass? Um, what will we see in some of these lower, you know, like down the ticket races? Um, so I am worried about those pieces. So let's let's move to the the fall. Um, yeah. We we will have an election. Um, we hope, uh, and we hope yeah. to have the pandemic in some ways at least a better understanding of its dynamics, if not more more under control. Are there are there lessons that we can draw from the experience we've just had, or the experience of other states? Uh, Wisconsin just recently held the primary. That that we can we can incorporate into the electoral process this fall. And there are, there are also concerns uh, about precedents being set in this current setting that are gonna influence um, the fall. So just start walking us through the, the fall. Yep. So I want us to remember that there is an August 4th special, and I bet you there'll be some watchers on, you know, who will have one of those. So let's not forget about that election day. Um, so, but yeah, we have two elections coming up and we need to think about those and then we th need to think about the long term. So these two elections coming up, the, the advocates are saying, you know, like myself and, and Common Cause or others are saying, let's assume that COVID-19 will still be here in Ohio. Let's assume that there even could be a second wave. Um, God forbid, um, and that we are going to really, a lot of people will want to vote by mail, or maybe health officials will want us to, or we may even need to. And so let's go ahead and replicate those all vote by mail states. We have time to plan for this. Yep. Everyone get a ballot. Just everyone get a ballot in the mail. Um, and again, let's skip all this application process that is confusing for the voter. A lot of voters get denied their, they are who they say they are, and they still get denied their ballot for a lot of different reasons, something we've been tracking for a long time. It's hard for boards of elections. Let's skip all that. Everyone get their ballot. Let's not close any polling locations yet until we know we need to, but let's plan in case we have to closed polling locations. So let's have expanded early voting, maybe a longer amount of time, definitely more than one location per county. Um, if you're in a county like Washington County, you might have to drive over an hour just to get to your early voting location. It's not that helpful if we're trying to really distance folks out or, or serve people that would like to um, still vote in person. Um, and then if we have to close it, we have to close it, um, um, locations, but still have multiple places across the county where people can drop their ballots. Mm -hmm. um, we think this is the best of all worlds. We think, yeah, it's expensive, but it's a lot. Um, it would be if we start planning now. It's going to be a lot easier on boards of elections. It's going to be a lot easier on voters. And ultimately, I would think candidates and campaigns would want that, too, so that everyone had a fair shot right to truly participate 
why wouldn't you, you mentioned cost? I want to know why, why are the reasons why we wouldn't embark on the changes that you just mentioned? So start with cost. Yeah. How expensive would it be to embark on a, uh, a male driven election? Well, it would depend on how we do that. Um, you know, um, we would, ex we would suggest that it's prepaid postage as mm -hmm. well. Um, yeah. So it kind of depends on how big the, the ballot is. There's a lot of factors in this that are a little bit hard to tell. I would say what's the cost of not doing it, which is especially if we, you know, we're kind of open, but we're still worried about the spread. And then we try to have a big election day where we could have lines that are hours long, yeah. you know, and let's keep in mind that election lines are different, especially in November. It could be gross, it could be rainy, it could be snowing, we never know, right? And so then everyone, if, if there's, especially with bad weather, everyone's going to shove into these polling locations, right? And you're not going to be, you're going to be six inches from the person in front of you and behind you, but a lot of times, you know, you're winding in hallways. I mean, the spread is really dangerous. So what's the cost of not doing it? I guess I would, I would, being a good advocate, Take us through the, the sort of political debate around elections, the, the notion of suppression versus integrity. Um, and, and we've heard a little bit in the news recently that um, you know, voting by mail may favor one group, one political party over another. Um, just, just walk us through in as apolitical a, 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 a frame as possible. Are those legitimate debates between suppression and integrity? Are there, are there genuine things to be concerned about on each side and the different modes of election, you know, increase the chances of one or the other? Yeah, no, so this is a really, this is an important question. Um, election security and integrity matters to everyone, right? I mean, it is, you know, elections are the engine of this democracy. And so, um, that's super important, but so is access. Democracy works best when we can all participate. So what is that balance, right? In terms of vote by mail, I mean, one of the things we hear a lot is fraud, and I have to be super clear with everyone, and every Secretary of State we've had in the last 20 years has made clear that it's almost non-existent. Um, so first off, let's make let's be very clear. Republican and Democrat secretaries of state have said over and over again that fraud is almost non-existent. Um, and that continues to be the case, as we mentioned previously, in vote by mail systems. Um, stealing elections, it, you know, in Ohio, we have just significant security. Um, and, and Secretary LaRose has done a great job in this, I think, in part because he's a Green Beret. So he thinks about foreign threats. Um, we have really, really great election security. So even if we end up being on, a mach on machines instead, those cannot be stolen and no one should be worried about that. So I think there's a, just a great fear and it actually is across party lines, the sphere of election security. I think especially after we've seen kind of attempts by foreign governments and things like that, right? Um, I can't speak for other states, but I can speak for ours that were secure. The other thing I would just say, and, and it's interesting because um, the secretary and I were talking about this the other day. There's no broad scale uh, situation where when, when elections aren't working, they're not working for anyone, you yeah. know, so, and I would say that's, this is a great example where one of the biggest populations we're concerned about are senior citizens in this primary, and they do skew, you know, a little bit more to the right, but we're also concerned about students who might skew a little bit more progressively. Um, and so I think the truth is that we just need elections to work and we need to take the politics 
out of it. And that's why we need to have organizations like mine um, and in academics like you and, and news media that are just trying to figure out the best way that it can work. I want to ask a few more questions about the fall um, yeah. and, then, and then ask some, some alternative threats to, to the process. So let's stick with the COVID pandemic and let's say we were in person um, and the vote by mail option uh, doesn't occur and we have um, uh, we don't have the expanded uh, early voting that you were suggesting, which would be a great thing to, to have. But let's say we don't have those things. What kinds of things do we need to have in place to make sure that in-person voting will be safe in, in yep. the fall if COVID is still present? You were starting to mention these things in light of the, the March primary, but what things would voters need to see in place to feel like, yep, that's safe, I can go in there and vote and not be at risk? Yeah, so we're going to need supplies. We're going to need safety supplies. Um, you know, I was hearing from voting location managers, which are basically the head of an entire polling location, could have multiple precincts, that they're like calling me and saying, Jen, I only have small gloves and they're not stretchy. They're not going to fit anyone. You know, um, I have 20 alcohol wipes for the entire day. You know, so we would need a lot of supplies so we could be wiping down the machines after each individual person. We would probably need to think about larger spaces. So if there were really big crowds that we could space people apart, we probably all would be wearing masks. And I think that would be okay. You know, we wouldn't want to have a, probably a younger, more an influx of, of younger poll workers um, who are less at risk for the most severe um, cases of COVID. Um, but I also think we could ease the vote by mail process more. So um, something, this has been bipartisan. Uh, the Secretary of State actually, the current Secretary of State introduced a bill um, previously when he was Senator to have online absentee ballot requests. Mm -hmm. um, and so at least we're taking out one step of the mail, you know, and if you still wanted to do it that way, you could mail in your request, but you could also do this online. Things like that, that would ease that. Um, would make a big difference. And I would still argue that early voting is a critical, um, having multiple early voting locations is critical. And in boards of elections and those election officials and both parties are often wanting more than one um, early voting center per uh, county and they're prohibited from doing so. Just educate us all. I'm, I'm, I came to learn of this a couple of years ago. Uh, boards of elections are equally represented by both parties. Just yep. explain that for us so we can be reassured that it is an inherently political process to vote and it is governed in some ways by the parties, uh, but right. it's designed in a way to be balanced. Just educate us on that a little bit. Yeah, so each um, board of elections, and let's just, there's a lot of differences in boards of elections in certain terms of like staff capacity or budget, because a lot of that is gonna be determined by each county. But they have an equal number of election officials, Republican and Democrat, who are making decisions about, you know, there's there's a lot of things that the Secretary of State or federal law outlines, but there are certainly times when it comes down to operational decisions, come down to the election officials. And so you're gonna always have that balance. Um, and that's great. Just like um, in, you know, there's a balance of poll workers, Republican and Democrat, in, in polling locations. Um, a lot of those policies through the years are things that the league has um, championed. Um, if there's a, if there's a recount, there's balance on um, representatives of party affiliations that way as well. Now let's go back to, to the fall and, and elections beyond. Um, yeah. 
So right now we're all fretting over COVID um, and its impact on our daily lives. And in this case, the rock bed of our country, the electoral process. But in the previous election, we were worried about the, you mentioned it, the influence of foreign governments on, uh, if not the, the actual count of the vote, although I assume that is a threat if we're, we're if machines can be hacked, et cetera. But every thing I've ever read to this point is that we have sufficient security in place to protect. It's more they're influencing the way voters are thinking about the electoral process. Yeah, um, and, and I would let, I want to really assure people here, if I could really quickly, please. Trevor, because bottom line is that this idea that machines can be hacked really doesn't happen in Ohio. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I just wanted to say that again, because people are so afraid of that. Right. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but, but before that, I mean, so we, we worried about the influence of foreign governments on the electoral process. And we were also having a statewide, if not national conversation about gerrymandering. Um, and so those are issues that are still present. And yet they seem to have receded from our, our thinking as we, we enter into the next electoral cycle. Um, What's the league doing to try and keep those issues um, as top of the brain or at least top of the brain on those um, governing the, the electoral process? Yeah, so gerrymandering, uh, the league actually started studying how maps were made, legislative maps were made in the 1940s, which I think is just so fascinating that there was this thought even back then that whoever had the pen could really have a lot of power. Um, we started fighting gerrymandering um, in the early 70s, late 60s, when Democrats had the pen. And now we know that Republicans in Ohio and other states um, have had the pen. And, and it can, we've, so we've had, a, what I'm saying is we've had a long gerrymandering problem. And the league has um, failed many times to bring reform to the people through ballot initiatives, finally winning in 2015 and 2018. And so the first thing is we are tenacious and we never give up and we never stop. So that's not going to happen here. COVID, there's nothing that could stop the League of Women Voters from fighting for fair maps, right? Um, so uh, that's first off. Um, but right now, of course, we're in the middle of the census. Um, and we do have, and the census is the basis of our maps, right? It'll help us determine how many congressional seats we will have. It will help us determine how big um, the congressional districts are in terms of population, as well as the state Senate and state uh, rep seats. And so um, we certainly need to have everyone participating in the census. And we're talking a lot about that. Good. We are concerned about the delay uh, we understand the need to potentially delay the results of the census coming into states, but that shortens our time frame even more in terms of making maps. And when time frames are shortened, it's harder for the public to be participating in the process. Um, so what we're doing today is we are um, already gearing up. We are um, recruiting people, everyday Ohioans, to be spokespeople and explain how the process works. We're creating our materials. We're working with scholars to think about some of the big questions like equal population um, or the Voting Rights Act and, and how to um, make sure that we um, uphold that. So there's a lot of different things that we're doing. And it's, for us, it's a two-year process um, where we are um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. We also next year will have a map contest, which we did 10 years ago, where everyday Ohioans can submit their own map. We'll actually provide the, the um, software online for free and they can mess around with it and they can just decide, I just want to see what I would think my district would look like or all of Franklin County. Um, and uh, you know, how many would we have and that kind of thing, or they can submit entire maps to the legislature. So it'll be fun. That's part of what we're doing is we're trying to convince people maps are fun. Good. 
Maps are fun. Voting is fun. <laughs> Glenn College, our big fans, Senator Glenn, <laughs> supportive of trying to get young people to, to get engaged in the electoral process, particularly by voting. Yeah. So, let's talk about that. Participation, we've, you've made mention of it throughout. Why is participation so low? Um, what, what, what explains that, uh, the, the drivers and, and what can we do to, to try and increase participation? Well, I think we've been talking about those issues too. I think there are people that think it won't count because elections are stolen or or people are crooked, right? Um, I think gerrymandering does not help when uh, you know who whoever you vote for for Congress, it's always going to be that person, or it's or it's always not going to be the person you vote for because of gerrymandering, because of just overall just confusion confusion um, again. And I've heard this over and over again. And I again, I've heard this from Republicans and Democrats. Democrats um, of all age ranges that have said to me things like, well, if they really wanted to know what I thought, they wouldn't make it so hard, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there, I think there's a combination of those things. And, and we have to, I think the more people understand the process, um, then the more they're willing to participate in it. And so that's our job. That's, our, that's just our number one job. We demystify government. Um, you demystify government among, you know, at OSU and among students and academic circles. I demystify government in the general public. And, and the hope is that helps people um, want to be a part of the process. Let's, let's come to the end of this by going back to the beginning, which was the 1918-1919 flu and then the following of uh, the 19th Amendment and women's right to vote. Where, where we are right now in the midst of this pandemic, it's, it's, it's hard to see the good that comes out of it. Um, but as you've pointed out, um, big, massive social changes like this bring about um, um, other kinds of, of changes to other systems, in this case, the political system. What do you foresee coming of this, this pandemic, both good for good or ill? Are there things in your world that you think there's an opportunity here to increase participation or the integrity of the or the accessibility of the electoral process? Or are you overcome with with the threats and the and the worry that um, this will dampen people's participation? Tell tell us the scenarios you see in the future. We can't pick my line of work and be a pessimist. Right. Um, um, I'm certainly a realist. I have to be realist, but I have to always find some wellspring of hope because you lose a lot. Right. Um, and so um, I always have hope and I always have faith, especially I'm a proud daughter of Ohio. I have faith in the people of Ohio. I always have and I always will. Um, so I, I do have fears, especially that um, maybe the legislature or other powers that be will think that the way we ran this election is just the way we can run them, um, which was really just wholly in inadequate. Um, and so then the hope is that the people of Ohio will join organizations like the League and push for reforms that work for everyone. Um, I have concerns that people will be more angry and more distrustful of government because when that happens, there is a real chance of disengagement. Um, but there also is a way of seeing how much government impacts our lives. And I think today more than ever, we feel government impacting our lives, literally, right? We are life and death decisions being made by the government. You know, and so if that's the case, is there a way to transform that into a fire for participating, not just as voters, but also as advocates? And um, so I, I think it's gonna be up to all of us to figure out um, our role and our part 
um, whether that's simply that we're voters or simply that we we vote, but we also register our, our, our fellow students or um, we're doing research or we're participating in advocacy days. Um, and so I am hopeful that as we see how precious life is and how hard things can be that we will just like we're getting creative about like programs like this that we will get creative about solutions to our everyday lives and and that we will make government come along with us right like government never just decides to do a thing right like the voting rights act wasn't just like someone was like oh let's do that right like people had you know the same with the 19th amendment um that really started in the abolition movement started before seneca falls right so so we have to make the government be responsive to us and so if we're now understanding how much it impacts us in a very real way um maybe we'll decide to participate more and that's my hope well, on that hopeful message, let's finish, Jen. This has been a lot of fun, great um, education for me and hopefully for, for those out there um, that they, they learn both about uh, the electoral process and the great work that you all do at the League. So keep it up and, um, and I'll, I'll hope to see you at the polls in the fall. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. 